And I'll ask you to stand. Um, a couple things I want to say about the reading today um, is just remind you of the characters. You have Ahab, the bad king, Jezebel, the bad queen, and Elijah, the hero from last week. All right, keep those names straight as you stand and get ready to hear this amazing story. All right. There's also mention of bread and water, and I'm reminded of the bread of life and the water of the Holy Spirit, which I might need to get through this whole reading. All right, now Ahab told, oh, this is from 1 Kings 19. It's a continuation of the story we read last week. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. He went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. And he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a still, small voice. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, 
and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. And yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. This is God's amazing word. You may be seated. Let me uh, quickly pray. Oh God, um, as you have blessed us with the hearing of, of this portion of your scripture, so bless Kyle as he delivers um, a message, uh, lessons from it, and let those sink deep into our hearts and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, sir. Well, friends, um, oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and you forgot your, uh, your trophy for doing such a great job with the reading. <laughs> it was long, so here you go. <laughs> well, this morning we are continuing our study on the cost of discipleship. We started it a few weeks ago. Um, what does it mean to look like and follow Jesus? What does he call us to as Christians? Um, and that's been the, really the topic of our discussion. And if you're like me, you might um, being, you might be feel, feeling a little filleted from some of these sermons um, because the, the cost is high. The challenge um, is quite extreme to us. Um, there's a challenge for all Christians to what we've seen, what Jesus said, to carry your own cross. Um, he says things like, let the dead bury the dead. Um, that there's no place as Christians to lay your head. Um, no pillow is so soft. He's, he says things like, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and so on. So you might be feeling a, li a little beat up, like me, um, wondering how, how, how we're, we're fit for such a task. We're saved by grace. We talked about that for months in the book of Galatians. But in our salvation, we are called to surrender our lives and our will to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. Uh, and last week we saw um, a, a wonderful example of a surrendered life in the prophet Elijah, um, a wonderful prophet and a, and a servant of the Lord who is brave, courageous, and faithful. A man, uh, if, if you recall last week's sermon, a man who made matters worse by dousing this, this uh, um, sacrifice with buckets and buckets of water and then calling down the fire of God's presence to consume it. But we also saw in him a man with great compassion for those who are far from God. But this week we have a little bit different of a picture of him. It's like he turned on a dime, on a hint, like a hinge on a door. The very same man who displayed courage and strength and faith last week, we see in just one chapter later a man who is weak, a man who is depressed, and a man who is asking God to kill him. And we're, we're sort of left as students of the Bible and disciples of God's word and disciples of Christ, how such a turn is possible in the human life and in the Christian life. And a lot of Bible scholars, by the way, criticize Elijah at this point, accusing him of things of sin, of lacking faith, of forgetting what just happened the chapter before. But my focus this morning isn't so much to deal with whether or not Elijah had fallen into sin or really, really determining exactly what, what his problem was, I'm more concerned about what God is, how God is treating him. So not so much about what Elijah is doing, 
But how is God treating his despair, his depression? What is God telling him to do, consequently, in this condition? Discipleship for Elijah in this moment took on a different shape than it did last week, right? Sometimes being a Christian, sometimes what it looks like to follow Jesus and imitate Jesus means that we need to go to sleep. We're going to talk about four things this morning, actually. The call of, and cost of discipleship is to sleep, sleep eat, pray, and lean. <clears throat> Let's look at sleep first. Now, Elijah just had experienced an incredible victory over the prophets of Baal. If you recall last week, as I mentioned, the passage that we read, he has 850 prophets of Baal before him. He challenges them to a contest to see which God is the one true God. And they are ranting and raving and cutting themselves, trying to get their God, Baal, to come and ignite their sacrifice on fire from heaven and alas, they don't show up. Elijah prays, he builds an altar, he calls on God and the fire comes. And consequently, the Israelites um, confess that they have sinned and they put their trust again in the, Lord, in, in the Lord over Baal. The people were once wavering between the worship of God and Baal. And now Elijah has just witnessed a massive corporate revival of an, of a nation, an entire nation. And he calls down fire on a soaked sacrifice, defeats the prophets of Baal, witnesses countless of people putting their trust in, Jesus, in, in the Lord and devoting themselves to Yahweh. This is a huge win, right? This is what we saw last week. But then shortly after, one person threatens his life, the queen of Israel, Jezebel, and he spirals off just by this one threat. He spir spirals off into dark despair. Have you ever experienced a great spiritual victory in your life and then the next moment wonder, why am I so upset? Why am I so afraid? What is happening internally? God's reaction to Elijah demonstrates a gentleness and patience with his people. He doesn't send lightning to strike him dead or she bears to eat him up. Our Heavenly Father in Psalm chapter 103 knows our frame and remembers that we are but dust. So we testify with John the Baptist, I am not the Christ, right? We are not God in the flesh. We are but dust. Elijah had been tested, and in this moment, being a disciple meant for him that he needed to take a nap. He needed to rest. It says in verse 5, then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. And then in verse 6, he ate and drank a second time and then lay down again. And then in verse 9, there he went into a cave and spent the night. All this at the instruction of the angel of the Lord. God tells a weary prophet, rest, sleep. And I think for some of us, it might be time to take that advice. It might not be time for maybe some of you hearing this to be lifting heavy weights of service. Rather, it might be time for you to rest a bit, to listen, and to heal. Now, I think this requires some brutal honesty and wisdom and self-awareness to know whether or not that's you. 
because I think the call to rest could be used as an excuse for some of us to continue on in apathy. And we've, that's, what, that's the exact thing that we've been challenging these past few weeks for us not to go to sleep, but to wake up, right? Because that is indeed the case for so many of us. We've been resting and sleeping for far too long, and it's time to get up, grab a sword, and go into battle. But I, as a pastor, know that that is not always the case with everybody. Some of us have been beaten to a pulp, and you need to rest. Perhaps you need to find a broom tree and sleep under it for a bit. Elijah went to sleep in this moment at the instruction of God because he needed to sleep. Sometimes we're stressed. Sometimes we're depressed. Not only for spiritual reasons, but also for physical ones. We haven't eaten or slept in days. We've been physically challenged. Now just kind of remember what Elijah had just gone through. Um, Elijah had just hand-built an altar made of rocks, right? I don't know if you realize this, but rocks are heavy, right? Then when he was done building the altar, he takes a bull and fillets the thing by himself. That's not easy either, right? Oh, and to make matters worse, we, didn't, we actually didn't read this part last week. It hinted at it this week, but Elijah went and took on 850 prophets of Baal in hand-to-hand combat by himself and killed all of them. That's probably pretty hard, too. <laughs> oh, and then there's this wonderful verse at the end of chapter 18, and you should read it. It says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he sprinted on foot from Mount Carmel to Je- Jezreel, 30 miles. Brother needs a good night's sleep, right? He's got to be tired after all this. So before we're a little too hard on him, I say, oh, I want to die, and no one's with me, and you know what? We're, we'd probably be saying the same thing after experiencing the kind of physically, spiritually, and emotionally exhausting events that he just experienced. You know that in, even Jesus in John chapter 4 sits by a well because, quote, he was weary from his journey. Sometimes Jesus stops healing people to sit on a nice little comfy spot because he's tired. During a violent storm in Mark chapter 4, he's allowing the disciples to go through this harrowing storm, afraid for his life, their lives, while he is asleep on a cushion in the stern. After 40 days of fasting and being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, at the end of this, an exhausted Jesus is ministered to by angels. And he experiences deep rest and recovery from what he had just gone through. Friends, sometimes our Heavenly Father invites us to rest. And that's okay. And we should do it. Sometimes what it looks like to follow Jesus is to get a solid eight hours in. Right? What's more, you're going to like this one. I told you last week you'll like this sermon better. There are times following Jesus means not only that we need to sleep, we need to eat. In Mark chapter 4 of Christ, we read this. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Friends, if Jesus gets hungry, we get hungry, right? 
And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he sent to see if perhaps he would find something on it. Because he was hungry. Did I mention that? When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And in response, Jesus said, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. It's the, it's the first and only destructive miracle that Jesus ever performs. All the other miracles Jesus does is to heal people, to give them life, to give them food. This is the first time Jesus actually destroys something, and it was because he was hungry. <laughs> now, there's probably a little bit more to it than that. A lot of scholars see this as like, that Israel was supposed to give people the food of God's word and they weren't, so that was kind of built into that. But there's something about, I don't know, my own sort of logic that thinks it's probably a little bit of both, right? Jesus was literally hungry, and he was a little ticked off when the fig tree had no fruit on it. He was so hungry that he stopped healing people. He was so hungry that he stopped casting out demons. He was so hungry that he stopped preaching sermons. He stopped doing all these things because he needed food. And so do you. Sometimes we need to stop and we need to eat. When Christ, he pulls up to his stop and shop, he finds it closed, so he burns it down. Don't do that, by the way. Friends, the principle here is disciples of Jesus Christ are called to take care of themselves. Now, we know that this doesn't mean that we're called to be selfish or we're called to be extravagant or not called to work hard. Ho hopefully, the past few weeks have shown us that, that's not, that that is not the cost and call of discipleship. But in the difficulty of following Jesus and the surrendering of our will and sometimes the emotionally and spiritually exhausting work that we do as followers of Jesus, sometimes we need to escape for a bit and freshen up. We need to sleep and we need to eat. Elijah is told in verse 5, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. The angel of the Lord came back a second time in verse 7 and touched him again and said, get up and eat. Friends, sometimes you need a sandwich just as much as you need prayer, right? The condition of our emotional and spiritual health is often affected by our physical health. Now, I admit, um, when, we, when, we, when we think about this instruction to both sleep and eat, they, they, they sort of complement each other, right? We, we could summarize this instruction both to sleep and eat as commands simply as taking pause and taking care of ourselves. Do you know that sometimes God gives you permission to slow down, to take a break, and enjoy the simple things of life? You can do that. He wants you to do that. He made us to be hungry, to taste things like bread and butter and blueberries and apple pie. Maureen just made a delicious one with my daughter. Oh, and it's so good. And God gave us taste buds to enjoy these things. You can, you can worship him just as much with a mouthful of key lime pie as you can with a mouthful of praise, just not at the same time. That gets messy. Um, there's this sort of ancient monastic gentleman named Brother Lawrence that some of you may have heard of. He writes this, we ought not to be weary 
of doing little things for the love of God, who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. So he famously said, I can do dishes to the glory of God. Just as much as I can pray to the glory of God, just as much as I can fast to the glory of God, I can wash simple dishes, I can eat food to the glory of God. He says, it is enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground for the love of God. Friends, we can love God and praise God simply by delighting in the fact that he has caused us to taste things like blackberries and given us the gift of Sunday naps. Just don't take it now. <laughs> take it later. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, lived in the 1800s, one of the most famous preachers at the time, probably the first megachurch pastor, that, though they wouldn't have called it that back then, but one of the most famous preachers of all time in the largest church on earth, um, suffered openly, and he admitted this and talked openly about it with his congregation, suffered with depression. And if you suffer with depression, you're not alone. It doesn't mean that you're not spiritual or that you're living in sin, and I would invite you to consider um, a book called Spurgeon's Sorrows. It's wonderful. Um, it's a great, it's a great um, resource to help you understand where this might be coming from in your life. But he talked openly to his congregation about his depression. He once said, there is nothing on earth that the human frame can suffer that the, there is nothing on earth that the human frame, frame can suffer to be compared with despondency and prostration of mind, what we call depression. They didn't even have the word depression back then. They called it despondency, prostration of mind, or melancholy. Did you know that, by the way, even Jesus suffered depression? And I got a Bible verse for it. He is called the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And he went through a deep depression in the garden, what some scholars have called the garden of sorrows, when he prayed a very similar prayer as Elijah, when he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of death. So if you're going through an emotional valley of death, you are in good company. It is not because there's something wrong with you. It's not because you're living in sin or you lack faith. It's, it is because very often we are frail human beings that go through trauma and that trauma affects us. Our Father is so filled with compassion that when, when, that when we are down, he tells us, Okay, rest, eat, heal. And then he invites Elijah to prayer. Sleep, eat, pray. Now prayer implies some things. Prayer is a meeting between God and man. It's a conversation that happens between God's children and between God himself. It's a meeting between the person praying and with our creator. So prayer is nothing short of an active experience of intimate communication between us and God our Father. You might have noted or noticed that twice in this passage, 
an angel wakes Elijah up and starts talking to him, has a conversation, and then God has a third conversation with him later. We call this prayer. And in this sort of conversation, after the angel wakes him up, you'll notice that something that Elijah says is, he says, I plead for my own death. Please take my life. So the angel says, I want you to journey to Mount Horeb. Did you notice this? Seems kind of maybe like that, maybe this part, it's a little bit tough on him. He's probably still pretty tired, and now he's got to go for a walk again. But Mount Horeb, if you understand where this is, this is remarkable. This is fantastic. God says, I want you, Elijah, to go to Mount Horeb. Do you know where Mount Horeb is? Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the place where God met Moses at the burning bush. It is the place where God, get, God met Moses face to face and gave him the Ten Commandments. So in other words, God is saying, Elijah, God wants to meet with you face to face. And friends, as children of God, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, when we talk to our God, we are standing on our own Mount Horeb. We have the, the, the audience of God in which we can communicate the deepest, darkest secrets of our heart. Exodus chapter 3, now Moses <clears throat> was tending the flock of Jethro, and he led the flock to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. He says, Elijah, when you are at your worst, I want to be near you. I want to see you. Exodus chapter 19, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. And then in Exodus chapter 20, he gives him the Ten Commandments. Now you remember on Mount Carmel, that was the mountain dedicated to Baal. And on, on Mount Carmel, Elijah's got all this faith and strength and he calls down the fire of God on it. So on Mount Carmel, Baal's mountain, Elijah has great faith. But on Mount Horeb, the Lord's mountain, he's weak and depressed. Yet God is present in both places with Elijah, just like he was with Moses. On Mount Carmel, Elijah calls to God and God comes down. On Mount Horeb, God calls to Elijah and Elijah wakes up. And this is what he's told by the Lord. Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for I am about to pass by. Oh, this is so much like Moses. You remember that part in Exodus, I believe, chapter 33, where God says, Moses, hide in the cleft of the rock because I'm about to pass by. Friends, the Lord hears us when we are strong and he hears us when we are weak. The Lord heard Elijah on Mount Carmel when his faith was great and he, learned, he heard the whimpering voice of Elijah on Horeb when he was asleep and his faith was weak. He passes by us when we're at our best and when we're at our worst because we're his kids and he loves us. He asks Elijah this question two times. I don't know if you noticed this. What are you doing here? It's a great question and it's very important. Elijah, what are you doing here? In other words, 
God cares about what is going on in Elijah's heart. He wants to know what's happening internally in his soul. He says, Elijah, talk to me. Be honest with me. Be real. What's happening in your heart? Speak. And he says this, this, he prays to God this prayer two times. The exact same words. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. It's almost like he wrote this down, practiced it, rehearsed it, and then said it twice to God. <laughs> now, if you, if you read this, you know that Elijah's assessment is wrong in a whole lot of different ways. But the greater point here is that he told God about it. He told God what he was feeling, what was happening in his heart. He spoke the words to the Lord. He didn't run from God. He didn't hide it from God. And he didn't, he didn't cover himself and heal himself through all this different sin. He didn't medicate through drugs and alcohol or sex. He said, God, here's how I'm thinking right now. Here's the truth. You know, God knows it anyway. You know, we might not say it, but he knows our heart. And so convinced that he's right about this, this little speech that he gives to God, he says, now it's enough, O Lord. Enough, enough is enough. Take my life. But he was wrong. It wasn't enough. Enough was not enough. Zach Eswine, in that book I mentioned to you, Spurgeon Sorrows, comments on Elijah here. He says his pain, his pain was lying to him. Oh, how often that is true of us, friends, that our pain lies to us. It paints a picture of our life that is much more bleak than what is in reality true. His pain was lying to him regarding his ability to know the future. And his future, in truth, was filled with blessing. So God shows up. He doesn't show up as a hammer. He doesn't show up in the great earthquake or in lightning bolts. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. Oh, surely it'll be here. He just showed up as a fire, right? In chapter 18 on that altar. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a still, small voice. You know, in the Hebrew, if you translate this literally, you would translate it a brief sound of silence. So in other words, all this commotion, earthquakes and wind and, right, like what we just went, and the Lord's not in any of that. And all of a sudden it just stops. There's this hush. There's this silence. And that's where the Lord was. In that moment, the Lord, for Elijah, was a gentle, quiet, listening friend. You know that sometimes a friend who listens is worth more than a friend who can't stop talking? Isn't that true? When we're just pouring our hot hearts with our pain and our loss and everything that we're going through, sometimes a friend just sits there listens 
doesn't say a word. And that silence speaks compassion to us. And it's healing, isn't it? The Lord doesn't correct Elijah. Here, let me, let me fix all the wrong things that you just said in that sentence. He just is silent. He's a quiet, gentle friend. Disciples meet with God in the valley. They eat, they sleep, they pray, and they're met with a gentle, quiet, listening God. And finally, disciples lean. Elijah two times tells God the only, that, that only he is zealous for the Lord and that he is all alone, right? Only I'm, I'm the only one that cares about the Lord. And everyone else is a crook. And if they're not a crook yet, they're soon going to be. Because I know people. And this is how we feel. We've been, we have been disappointed so many times by so many people. I mean, watch the news this past year. How many heroes of ours in the evangelical world have fallen in ways we would never have imagined anyone falling in. And sometimes we're, we stand back and we wonder, is, are you all faking too? Is it just me? Am I the only one? Elijah felt this. And he tells God twice, I'm the only one that's zealous for you, Lord. Now, in the moment on Mount Carmel, that was actually true. At, at least on that mountain. There were no other prophets there with him. There were no other Israelites that were like, hey, Elijah, we got your back. He was by himself on that Mount, on Mount Carmel. But he took that one situation and then he expanded upon it into all of Israel. He said, if that's true on Carmel, it must be true everywhere else. And that is the lie that he jumped to that wasn't true. He had a skewed perspective that was affecting his spiritual, emotional, and mental health. So God tells him, he responds to this by, by implying that he wants him to go lean on some people. He says, I want you to go to Damascus. And he tells him that it's time to lean on the people that he thought weren't there. But they were there. Because God doesn't say, hey, Elijah, you know, you're totally wrong. There are a lot of people that love you, that love me. He actually says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to see them. So he says, I want you to go to Aram, and I want you to anoint Hazael king. And then when you're done with that, I want you to go to Jehu, the son of Nimshi, the king of Israel, and I want you to anoint him too. And then when you're done anointing Nimshi, I want you to find a guy named Elisha. Because Elisha is a prophet, and you're going to teach him. And he's going to go with you everywhere you go. Oh, and by the way, there are 7,000 people in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you're not alone. You're not alone, brother. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are not alone. Now, th there may have been churches and people and family and friends that have failed you and disappointed you. My guess is it'll probably happen again, but you are not alone. There are two kings that are protecting you, Elijah. There are 7,000 men who will support you, and Elisha is going to go with you to the day of your death 
or his rapture, if you know anything about Elijah. Friends, people of God, we're not alone. So don't give up. Don't quit. Lean on each other. At times, we need to stop the false narrative, that lie that's just sort of on rinse and repeat in our brain, that's playing in our heads, and we need to lean on the many people of God that have not bowed the knee to Baal, that are in it with us, that love the Lord Jesus Christ as much as we do. You know that God gave Moses a co-worker in, in his uh, friend Aaron? He gave David a, kin, a kindred spirit in his friend Jonathan? Even Jesus had Peter, James, and John as his inner circle, as people saw, the ones that saw him when he was at his weakest and most vulnerable. The, the Apostle Paul always travel, traveled in groups and had ministry partners, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Luke, and so on. Philippians chapter 2 says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, as soon as I see how it goes with me. In other words, I want to send you Timothy, but I'm not doing it right now because I need him. I'm just a man. I need encouragement. I need people to lean on. So you don't get him yet. I need him. He goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, without and fear within. They were afraid. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by, by the coming of Titus. Right? In other words, sometimes you need a flesh and blood brother or sister in Christ to look you in the eye and to tell you that you're not alone and that you are loved. Second John chapter, uh, Second John verse twelve says, "Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may complete, may be complete. Complete. Impersonal, indirect communication is not enough. Facebook friends are not what you need. You need warm bodies in the room with you. When we're tempted." to despair, and when we paint a picture bleaker than reality, it is in prayer that God reminds us to lean on our 7,000, to lean on our Elisha. Isn't that good news? Friends, there is a cost to discipleship, and I'll close here. There is a cost to discipleship. Following Jesus is a life of self-sacrifice. We're called to surrender our will, our preferences, our comforts. There are times following Jesus means sleepless nights, poverty, sickness, because we're called to follow him wherever he leads. But our Heavenly Father knows our frame, and he bids the weary disciple at times to take pause to sleep, to eat, to pray, and to lean. I hope that in your, our life of discipleship, we can discern what time it is to sprint and what time it is to rest. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this morning we come to you 
And we ask your blessing for those who have been through a battle. Maybe a battle that we don't see because maybe we just see them sitting here on a Sunday morning and we're not fully aware of all the things that they've experienced. And God, I pray, Lord, if, there are, if there's anyone here with a heavy heart, if they've been through hell on earth, God, I pray, Lord, that you would give them the awareness that it's okay for them to sit and to listen and to heal, to rest. And God, would you restore them? I want to pray over you right now, brother or sister in Christ. You can be restored. You can be healed. God, is, God wants to give you some food. And he wants to give your body rest and your soul healing. And he invites you to lean on your Elisha, your 7,000. Would you do that this morning? Would you be okay with recovery? I pray, Lord God, that this morning you would help us to discern. Maybe we've been in recovery a little too long. Maybe we need to get up and grab our tools and get busy. Oh God, give us wisdom. Give us discernment. I pray transform our lives. Help us in our transformation, not simply just to get it from food or from sleep, but to get it from your face. A God who meets us in our weakness. I pray that we would hear your word and hear your promise and believe it in faith and trust you. And that, we, that our faith in your promise would restore our health. I pray, God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you yet, Friend, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He became a man so that he could die in your place for your sin. Oh, friends, he was put in the grave so that you could be taken out of it. Your sin is forgiven only in Christ. You can't work it. So would you come to him if you don't know him? Would you cry out to him, God, I'm a sinner. Save me. I trust that Jesus' death and resurrection is the satisfaction for my sin. Oh, friend, if that's you, you're saved. Your sins are gone. The work is finished. Follow Christ. And if you, if you sense that your heart is believing in him for the first time, would you come and talk to me and celebrate with me over this? I want to get to know you. I want to pray for you. God, thank you for this time, this morning, that we got to hear your word. I pray, Lord, that it would give us strength and help in our time of need. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.